Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. We've got Alex. Alex is another one of my old students, and he's taking over Edmund's spot this week. We're going to talk about the Timaeus, a platonic dialogue with a bunch of cosmology and metaphysics. One of those dialogues that doesn't tend to get assigned in politics classes because it's got all this speculative stuff in it. We're going to talk about what all of that means. We're going to dig into some detail. I know we've, we've talked a little bit about some of the metaphysical speculations of Plato, but usually in a very general way, and we don't spend too much time with it. So now we're going we're gonna to do it right. We're going to do it properly. We're going to talk about the Timaeus. So, Alex, as you're reading the Timaeus, you know, what stuck out to you? What, what did you notice that was really interesting? Um, not too sure, to be honest, but I'm just kind of stuck on where the forms fit into this. And... Uh, where eternity fits into this and kind of eternal principles and what holds forever. Cause on the face of it, he seems to be saying like, you know, time was created forever, but it seems to be more like mm, certain things, certain principles like the good hold forever. And it's just a bit confusing how he goes about that because. Yeah. yeah. There are some things that always are here. And then there are other things that are becoming. And there's a, Another distinction that is made between uh, what is intelligible and what is necessary. The things that are intelligible that we can know for Plato are the things that always are, that are permanent. And they're conceptual. And they include things like the good, the form of the good, the set of the forms. And then the things that are becoming are things that are material. And therefore, ever-changing, unreliable. And those are the things that count. They're, they're considered the sensible things in the sensible world. And they're considered what is necessary. Mm. So those conceptual, that, that conceptual distinction between the intelligible and the necessary maps onto this distinction between what always is and what is becoming. A lot of the time, Plato gets, I think, hard done by because some people read him and they read him as someone who is an essentialist who is saying that everything is permanent and nothing changes. But he makes a clear distinction between the sensible world where everything is constantly in flux and this world of intelligibles where things are steady. But the intelligibles are not things that we're looking at. They're not water. They're not any of the elements, the four elements that Plato mentions in the dialogue, fire, air, earth, and water. None of that counts as in the realm of intelligibles. That's all sensibles. Would you count numbers in being in the eternals because they're abstract and a bit like that? Certainly the form of, yeah, the form of numbers, you know, the form of one, right? Mm. Uh, so you, you have kind of a, a demiurge in this and the demiurge sits kind of in between the intelligible and the necessary. Some readings of the Timaeus position the demiurge as, as really in the intelligible or as in some way personifying the intelligible, but I think it's more accurate to put the demiurge in between, and the demiurge is the craftsman, right? 
So the craftsman makes the world, so creates, uh, you, know, you know, creates the world, but creates it in line with what is necessary. So because the craftsman is entering into a situation where there is what, what Plato calls the receptacle, the existing conditions of space, the craftsman is to some degree constrained by the nature of the receptacle and therefore can't just do anything that the craftsman would like to do. The craftsman is also trying to make the physical world in alignment with the intelligibles, so in alignment with the good, with the forms. So the craftsman is trying to make the sensible like the intelligible and is crafting the sensible with a mind to the intelligible. And the craftsman has good intentions and is doing the best that the craftsman can, but the craftsman is limited by the fact that the sensible is always in flux, is not quite able to be perfectly in alignment with the intelligible. And so even the craftsman who makes the world is constrained by this gap between the physical and the good. This makes the craftsman very different from a Judeo-Christian God who precedes everything, who is a prime mover. The Judeo-Christian God who is a prime mover is in charge of, of everything and therefore would not be constrained by any other force. The Demiurge is, is a craftsman and not a prime mover in that same sense, and so is constrained both by the characteristics of the receptacle, of the category of the necessary, and what is intelligible. So if he's constrained, we kind of have to open ourselves up to him in a certain way to make ourselves receptive to that divine intelligence. And it seems like you're identifying the divine with intellect in a way. Like the craftsman is intellect plus reason or logos. And it has to work through things. It can't just know it all there and then before experience. I don't know. Yeah, sometimes the craftsman is read, is read as if he is intellect. But I, I think of the craftsman, even the craftsman is to some degree trying to do intellect, trying to bring intellect into being. And the, the craftsman also does not directly create human beings in the Tamas. The craftsman creates the gods and the gods create human beings. So the craftsman's level of interest in us is pretty minimal on this account because the Greek gods are the mediators that sit in between the craftsman and human beings. And those gods are themselves created by the craftsman and therefore are also already to some degree estranged from the, the world of the intelligibles as everything created by the craftsman is estranged. So there's multiple levels of estrangement here since human beings are created by the gods which are created by the craftsman and the craftsman is constrained in his creation by the characteristics of the receptacle and the inability of the receptacle to fully reflect the realm of the intelligibles, the forms and the good. So human beings are quite far away from pure intelligibles. But human beings still, Plato argues, have a lot of different physical characteristics that are indicative of having been in some way designed to 
participate in the intelligible. And the sense in which human beings have soul for Plato is that human beings have some capacity to engage with this realm of intelligibles. And for Plato, that is what it means to have a soul. It's to have intellect, to have an ability to interface with the realm of the intelligibles. That mixture between what's eternal, indivisible, and what's kind of partible and divisible and very temporary. Yeah. But he starts with the temporary stuff, the becoming. And then he works backwards up to the higher order term of being and eternal, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know, there here we do have the other parts of the soul mentioned in the Republic and the Phaedrus, the spirited and appetitive parts. They're mentioned as well. And they're n- consequences of the need to put human beings in physical bodies. Because human beings have to be in physical bodies, their souls have to have these other parts that are to do with managing the physical. And it's the presence of these other parts which distracts them from the realm of the intelligibles. And this is what makes them different from gods. Gods are more perfect because they are more able to participate in the realm of the intelligibles. So as Plato says in the Phaedrus, the gods' chariots effortlessly circle the heavens and are never distracted by being embodied. Because the gods don't have physical bodies, they don't get distracted by bodily concerns. Our souls are less perfect because of the need for those other parts. But we could not have material being unless we had those parts. So we could not exist if we did not have those aspects. So the argument then is that human beings are as good as they can be consistent with the fact that they have to be embodied. And there are consequences of having to be embodied that no one in Plato's story can simply power your way through. Even the demiurge, even the craftsman cannot create human beings that are totally free of the need to be embodied. The only way to create such beings would be to to not give them bodies, and then they would be gods. And then we would have no ignorance at all? Well, then, like the gods, we would be able to uh, participate effortlessly in the realm of the intelligibles. There seems to be some kind of notion of, you know, why make anything? And this is one of the objections that gets raised to this. You know, if making anything that's physical requires deviation from pure intelligibles and from the forms, you know, why make anything at all? Because to make anything is to introduce imperfection. So there is an implicit argument here that it would be bad to not make anything at all, that these uh, forms or these concepts are best, uh, are best realized by making material stuff, which in some way incorporates or aligns with them. But since you can only make that stuff through a process that involves deviation, uh, yeah, I suppose I, I think Plato's argument here would be similar to the argument that an artist might make. You know, an artist who paints a painting can never get the painting to look exactly the way that they envisioned it, but they can, uh, you know, make a painting which incorporates a lot of what they envisioned. And for the artist, that's better than making no painting at all, even though the painting will, of course, contain imperfections and departures from the vision. In a similar way, the craftsman decides to make uh, to make the world, even though it will not be perfect. So he's not really minimally involved with us because he wants us to be as good as we can be, and he wants his creation to be valued, I guess. Even though most people won't well, he care. wants the universe. He wants the universe to be as good as it can be, but he doesn't directly create human beings. 
So the craftsman's interest in human beings directly is not as strong because the craftsman makes the gods and the gods make people. A bit like, yeah, forms and concepts yeah. and concepts and uh, like, uh, images. There's this estrangement um, or the artist in his- yeah. Right. And, and the more layers you get of this creation, the more imperfect things become. The craftsman doesn't think it's necessary to make people. But the gods do. The gods think that making people is is worth doing. Oh, maybe it's a bit of a semantics or textual thing, but I thought it said he created the gods with the intention that they would make offspring that is like them, even though he didn't want to do it himself. Yes, they, they would make offspring that's like them, but the particular offspring that they make or how they make, he doesn't determine. Just that they be as good as possible. Yes. He makes the gods as good as, as he can make them. And he makes them, giving them the capacity, of course, to make further things. So he intends for them to make further things, but he does not determine what specific things they make. I'm, I'm still not sure what you're saying about what the point of it all is then. Like, why would the Demiurge create something if it is a bit if, if, pointless, estranged, if there is so much suffering like that? And it is full of necessity, well, not reason. I think there is an implicit argument here that this realm of, of intelligibles is valuable in part because it has consequences for the physical. So some people look at, at something like the form of the good and go, well, if you can only bring something into being by deviating from the form, then why would you bring anything into being? But maybe part of what makes the good good is that it can be applied. If part of what makes the good good is that you can apply it to something, then you need some set of things to which it can be applied. But if it can be applied to those things, then of course those things do not automatically participate in it. It has to be applied through a process of intelligible intellectual creation. And in this way, Plato kind of suggests what our role is. So as human beings, because we can interface with the realm of intelligibles and we exist in the material world and we interact with the material world we have some capacity to use our capacity to perceive intelligibles to improve the material world and so then our role becomes just as the gods try to bring the idea of the good into the material world by making us it then becomes our role to further protect, uh, perfect the material world by bringing our interfacing with the good into it. Is it worth mapping that distinction between reason and necessity onto how all religions have kind of seen good versus evil or light versus dark, yin versus yang, the kind of the good aspect and the perverse aspect and the fact that in order to really see good, it has to fight against something? There has to be some kind of struggle where it's proven or tested. Otherwise, it would just be static and there wouldn't be anything existed. Is it a way of conceptualizing that? Yeah. You can see, I think, in the case of Christianity, there's, there's an aspect of this which Platonism treats in a more satisfying way and an aspect which Christianity treats in a more satisfying way. So Christianity has an explanation of the final cause. Whereas with Platonism, the question is kicked back because the Demiurge does not create the receptacle and the Demiurge does not create the intelligibles. Therefore, the intelligibles do not depend on the authority of the Demiurge. And the receptacle is not 
good and not infinitely good because it exists independent of the demiurge. So there are these further questions that Christians will ask and go, well, if the demiurge is doing all of this, but the receptacle exists and the intelligibles exist independent of the demiurge, then who creates those things? Where do they come from? And if you're someone who's disposed to a kind of Thomist argument where everything has to have a cause, then that becomes a persuasive objection to this. But conversely, Platonism has a much easier explanation for the problem of evil because in Platonism, at no point does the demiurge intend for evil. At no point do the gods intend for evil, but the imperfections of the receptacle and the constraints of dealing with matter result in beings that have the capacity for evil, even though everybody is doing their best. So, I, whereas in Christianity, if you do have a final cause that is responsible for the way the natural world is and for what the good means, and in Christianity, God is positioned as having authority over what is good and bad and over the way the natural world works. If God has authority over those things, then why aren't those things perfect? Politically, is, um, is it easier to blame people with a Christian worldview then than a Platonist worldview or not? Would you say that both are kind of, uh, they wouldn't say people choose to be wicked? Yeah, so this, this gets into questions of, of individual freedom. And we don't really get much discussion of individual freedom or culpability in Plato. The idea of the self doesn't really come into Plato much. With Plato, we get discussions of the way the universe is ordered and the way cities are ordered and the way human souls are ordered. But all of this is connected. The souls are ordered the way that they are because of this existence in the material universe. So for Plato, the reason that we do bad things is that sometimes our souls are out of alignment. Our souls are out of alignment because when we were created, we had to be created as material beings, which means we had to be given appetitive and spirited parts of our souls. And without you know, very careful discipline and training, those parts of the souls will dominate. And certain kinds of souls uh, are designed in part to have those, those aspects dominate because it's not possible for a city to exist, for human beings to exist in the physical world without having some people who are disposed to be preoccupied with physical things, right? You can't have the, the ideal city in the Republic without bronze souls and silver souls. You need those souls so that the city can exist, so that philosophy can occur, and then the philosopher can apply the benefits of philosophy, the glimpses of the good that the philosopher has gained, and use those things to further improve the city and to further improve the physical world, right? None of that can happen unless you have silver and bronze souls. So those souls have to come into being and have to be part of the story. And in this way, you have a big structural explanation for evil that embeds it in the fundamental reality of the world and, and the fact that you can only make a world that is conceived in the receptacle so good, right? Because once you make people, those people are separated from each other by the fact of their embodiment. They don't have uh, a full capacity to understand each other, to feel one another's needs, 
and they're distracted constantly by the parts of their soul, which urge them to prioritize their own body over the good of the whole universe or of the whole city. Right. So there's an explanation for for evil in Plato that comes from the ignorance of the human being, the ignorance of the human being of the good and the ignorance of the human being of the bodily needs of everybody else because of the tendency to be predisposed to one's own bodily needs and therefore to not take other people's needs into, into serious account, except as a consequence of doing philosophy and of realigning one's soul and in the course of realigning one's soul, realigning oneself with the soul of the whole world, right? Conversely, in Christianity, you do have a notion of the self because Christianity comes along much later when the self is a, a much more common and dominant idea in Greco-Roman theory. Now, some Christian accounts of the self give you a lot of personal responsibility and personal control over what you do. Others do not. And the ones that do not tend to be more influenced by Platonism. So in the case of Augustine, you are only able to avoid sin through divine grace. So you only have the capacity to will yourself to not commit sins insofar as you've been given the grace of God. So therefore, you have free will, but only insofar as you have it through God's grace. So your ability to resist sin depends in part on God giving you this, this strength. And so in a lot of Christian uh, lingo, you have, you know, God give me the strength to do things because the will can only act with assistance. In other Christian accounts, you're expected to play a much larger role in determining what you do. Free will is much larger and more totalizing. And then you've got Christian accounts like Calvinism in which you don't have any real control at all and you're predestined to go to heaven or hell. So there's a lot of diversity within the Christian tradition, but in general, Christianity is much more interested in culpability of particular people than Platonism is. Platonism tends to view mistakes as baked into the structure of the universe. Mm. And that even the, the best ideal city will inevitably corrupt and degenerate, and even the worst city will inevitably go back to its best uh, state, kind of different from how we think in these times where those aberrations kind of are viewed as, yeah, aberrations towards the good, whereas in Plato, it's very much more of a cycle forever. But Yeah, yeah. You, you can perhaps see maybe some glimmer of a possible doctrine in which there is a notion of progress here, because if the philosopher is really able to grasp intelligibles, then the philosopher would be able to bring the world into greater and greater alignment with intelligibles and would therefore be uh, aiding and assisting the gods in the work of making the world perfect. And that seems to be what Plato wants us to struggle to try to do. But structurally, it's very difficult because of the need to balance the city to enable that to happen. Well, the, that's the whole thing. The whole ethical dimension of a text is getting that baser part of your soul in alignment so that you can pursue these higher things. So then when you talk about uh, Augustine and later you know, liking Platonism because I think it, he emphasizes the how individuals have less responsibility. It's a bit weird because under Plato, the whole idea of grace is that it's not passive. It's not like you're not responsible. You are responsible and you have to actively make yourself receptive to grace. It's not like you just sit back and passively yeah, soak it up. 
Well, for Plato, you have to be made into the kind of person who can do this through social institutions. So in the Republic, to become, A, you have to be a gold soul to start with. So you have to have the right kind of soul. And then B, you have to have the education that's appropriate to the guardians so that you can fully realize your potential as a philosopher, right? And all of that depends on being in the kind of city where that's possible, the kind of city where gold souls are appropriately distinguished from silver and bronze, being in the kind of city where the right kind of education is possible because you have access to the things that you need to have that education, right? So in Plato's account, if you're going to go astray, it's going to be because you have the wrong kind of soul, in which case there's not much you can do, or because the city does not facilitate you being in the right position. You might have a gold soul, but the city doesn't train you. You might be trained, but the city doesn't put you in position to rule, right? So all of the mistakes that we make have these structural causes and are not just reducible to the person. And meanwhile, for, for Augustine, if you commit sins and you fall away, uh, that happens because, you know, unfortunately, the divine grace did not cause you to resist those sins, but you're going to hell anyway. You're going to hell. You're, you're still to blame. Okay, because when you get divine grace, that's a kind of mercy from God, which you don't deserve. So you're going to hell anyway. And Augustine is very, very emphatic on this point. You're going to hell. Plato doesn't have this, this uh, notion of, of kind of divine punishment. So institutionally, how would Plato City keep a lid on that degeneration? Because... Obviously, it's hard to keep a lid on when the the lower, if you can call it that, the lower kinds of souls are just people who don't care about truth for its own sake, people who care about, you know, being cool or pleasure, that kind of stuff. They can't notice when it's happening. Uh, well, that kind of takes us back back into Republic. Okay. Uh, but in, in the direction, that's, that's okay. We can do a little bit of that. But the, the way that, because it comes out of the conversation, uh, but the way that we're supposed to keep the thing floating, the philosophers are supposed to be able to figure out what's necessary to maintain the justice of the city. And the justice of the city is keeping everybody in the roles which correspond to the type of soul that they have. That can't happen unless the philosophers give the different parts of the city the things that they value, enough of the things that they value so that those parts will cooperate with the city. However, if they give them too much, then those parts of the city will become too powerful and too strong and they'll take over the whole thing. So in the Phaedrus, when he does the chariot allegory, where the rational part of the soul is the rider and each of the two lower parts of the soul are the horses in the chariot, right? You know, you have the white horse, the status-oriented, honor-loving horse, and the dark horse, the appetitive, desire, pleasure-seeking part. You have to get those horses to carry you into the heavens, which means you have to feed the horses enough that they're strong enough to get you up there. But if you just do whatever the horses want all the time, then they won't bother to go to the heavens because they don't care about going to the heavens. They're interested in being fed and being taken care of and being the, the white horse wants to be appreciated and loved and, and told how great it is and how wonderful it is. And the dark horse wants to have a good time. So if you just do whatever the horses want, you'll never see the heavens. But if you don't take good enough care of the horses, they won't be strong enough to get you there. So 
you're in this position of having to take care of the horses while remembering that the point of life is not to take care of the horses. The point of life is to go to the heavens and see the good, right? So you have to get this balance right. And that's why Plato, when he talks about uh, the necessary desires in the Republic, these are the desires that you must cater to. Otherwise, the city falls out of alignment. They're not the desires that are necessary just for survival of the particular person, the particular person's body. Uh, they are the desires that are necessary for the survival of the city. And that also includes some delicacies, which, which Plato describes as desires that you cannot reasonably expect enough people to get rid of. And if you have people who are bronze souls or silver souls, there's a lot of things that those people are not going to be able to reasonably get rid of. Only the philosophers will be able to manage their desires to that kind of degree. The other classes in the city will not be able to manage it nearly as much. So the philosophers will make tactical concessions to those desires where necessary to get those parts of the city to cooperate. But the philosophers will not concede so much to those classes that they take the thing over. But the issue is, obviously, it's not like anyone's a pure gold soul or a pure silver soul. We've all kind of got aspects of all three. And then that's the issue because yeah. you see, if you're a gold soul, mainly, and you see most people are eating delicacies after their meal, they're not just getting their food. You also see that as a ruler, he talked about in Atlantis, the the gold souls are supposed to actually hunt bulls, not with, you know, swords and steel weapons, but with clubs to show their, their kind of courage, that kind of stuff. So you end up becoming like the people that you're trying to, I guess, uh, not not move away from, but do you know what I mean? You end up becoming more like the bronze and the silver. So eventually it comes back to Augustine, like it is kind of all damned. And at the end of Atlantis, obviously, Zeus punishes them for starting to judge their character, not by, or judge honor and, and goodness, not by um, someone's character, but by their wealth. And they got possessive over uh, material stuff and they accumulate things. So yeah, the whole city's destroyed and it goes back to that theme of, uh, cycles where even the most ideal city can't last and those institutions can you design them to really be stable in pursuit of the good i'm not sure plato is confident about that i don't think plato is confident about it either uh, but what else can we do but try that's kind of the the thing the philosopher may be doomed to not be able to maintain the city in perpetuity but to have a good city you have to have people who are trying. And so all the philosopher really can do is, is try. Uh, there will be mistakes, Plato says in the Republic. The philosophers will make mistakes. They will misallocate roles eventually. They'll make mistakes about who gets what role. And gradually the silver will tend to permeate the governing class. And the silver class will gradually make the state more and more concerned with the appearance of the good rather than the thing itself. And of course, from there, you get uh, conflict between the bronze and the silver, because the silver are constantly trying to uh, overimpose this appearance of goodness. Uh, and that means they neglect the desires and needs of the bronze because those things are sordid and ugly. So the bronze rebels, the silver and gold have to get together and enslave the bronze to stop the bronze from rebelling. Once the bronze has been rebelled, then the rulers begin accumulating huge amounts of money because they've enslaved the bronze and they're exploiting them heavily. They become more and more obsessed with money. 
and the luxuries that money can buy, they become more bronze. Uh, and then you have class conflict between the uh, demos and the rulers um, and, and the oligarchs. And that class conflict manifests, A, because you have large numbers of enslaved people who are miserable, B, because as more and more wealth get accumulates in the hands of smaller and smaller numbers of the rulers, you get more people who fall out of the ruling class because they don't have enough land to stay in it. And those people become kind of grifter citizens, uh, or as Plato says in the Republic, drones who cause trouble. Some of them are are harmless, but others are drones with stings, and those drones with stings cause trouble in the city. So yes, you, you do get this this falling down. But I I, I suppose you could read, I, I often read Plato as a cyclical thinker. You could try to read these uh, philosophers as maybe having some possibility of being better than the cycle. And I think that's a reading that some people like where the philosopher really does grasp the good and therefore really is able to do a lot of these things. But I've always preferred the reading, which even even puts the philosopher, puts the gold soul as imperfect, because even the gold soul has got to take care of the body and cannot devote all of their intention, uh, all of their time and intentions to the realm of the intelligibles. To do that would be to allow the body to waste away. So. Or it's kind of like if you do, you can do that, but not at scale. Cause it sounds like you're talking about the kind of, uh, maybe a yogic process or a tantra or a kind of enlightenment. And you could link this to the Timaeus because there's a lot of discussion about what goes in the body and its cosmic significance and, you know, how justice is a kind of form of union with all beings. You understand it inside the soul, but it applies to all beings out there, so to speak, you know, and when he, yeah. If you if you try and elevate on that level, uh, you know you purify the bodily aspects from the soul. You attain this kind of understanding of the good, justice, and the result is happiness, unlike any other. Uh, if you can connect to that, the demon in your in your crown, you're not really going to start living politically, maybe, or you're going to depend on politics, but you're not going to practice that virtue of ruling so much. So it's not going to be uh, possible for most people to do that, or even to care. Even though anyone could do it. Well, for Plato, if you really understand the good, then you'll understand the need for the city to reproduce the philosopher class and to create conditions under which philosophy can occur. If you've really understood the good, then you'll see that you need a city and that you can't ignore political concerns. If you do ignore political concerns, then the other souls will dominate the city and they'll destroy the space for philosophy. So you, I, I think that is Plato's beef. With uh, or what would be Plato's beef because he hadn't met yet, uh, I don't think any Indian philosophers. The kind of Buddhist Theravada argument for pulling out of the city and going into the hills and engaging in a contemplative practice uh, alone or in isolation from from political affairs. For Plato, you can't you can't get out of that. And Aristotle agrees with Plato in this when he says that outside the city you're either a beast or a god and. Well, since you can't be a god because you're a mortal, you must be a beast. So I think that's where we see what is really, I think, one of the most distinctive features of early, early Greek thought. So pre-Hellenistic, pre-Stoic, pre-Epicurean Greek, Greek Socratic thought, so including both Aristotle and Plato in this, is this idea that the city is not something that we can exist outside of. It's not something 
that philosophy can exist outside of. And therefore, the philosopher must, must engage with the political, can't avoid it, and attempts to avoid it end in disaster. And the only person who would try to avoid politics is someone who doesn't understand the good. <laughs> Gosh. But could you still say that there, there's so much similarity insofar as, you know, they separate pleasure from the liking or the wanting or the addiction from it? In the Timaeus, you know, the pain does not have to mean aversion or dislike or fear. There's kind of, you can even map on this idea that the, the base or the copper part of your soul gives you this kind of um, rock-like stability. It has, it has power in the sense that it could both be a steadying energy, like the cooling of the diaphragm or the divination of the liver, or it could be kind of afflictive, like the, the internal fire you have, the heat digestion or the confusion when the liver is not able to purify yourself. And then also this discussion of the two veins coiling around your spinal column. And if you keep your spine upright, and if you keep your moral behavior upright, uh, this energy can rise up to the daimon in the crown of your head. You can call it kundalini or chi or whatever. But And there's a lot of discussion about uh, sexual incontinence as well in the Timaeus. It does sound like there's some kind of, it doesn't have to be, you know, like the Theravada ideal where you're separate from society, but nevertheless, it's kind of, yeah, uh, yogic, tantric enlightenment process where you have to align yourself with the divine to access the good. And yeah. Yes. I, I do think there are lots of areas of overlap where Platonism can fit neatly with a more politically or community oriented forms of Buddhism. And I see a lot of similarities between Platonism and the Mahayana tradition in Buddhism, which is more interested in the Sangha and the Bodhisattva and and this idea of loving kindness. I think there's more overlap there. And indeed, there's probably some interaction between Buddhists and Greek philosophers, which I think has contributed in some ways to the rise of Mahayana, since Buddhism was heavily adopted in the Indo-Greek kingdom, uh, for which existed in India for several hundred years, and through trade routes made its way to China from there. Uh, especially over the course of the Tang dynasty. I think there's definitely substantial overlaps there. But just as, uh, just as Greek philosophy has many different strands, Indian philosophy has many dis different strands, and Buddhism has many different strands. And you can find these versions that are, are more community-oriented and these versions that are less. And the same goes for Greek philosophy, especially after interaction with Indian philosophy, where you get more of these ideas of the self in Stoic theory, in uh, Epicurean theory, and more of this emphasis on what the individual is able to do regardless of social conditions, especially as the Greeks move from being in cities where they feel heavily involved in the politics of the city to living in Hellenistic kingdoms in the Roman Empire, where the individual has much less political involvement much less ability to do anything politically that would allow political institutions to improve. And therefore, there's a tendency in these periods where the individual feels politically weak to try to look to what they can do morally at, or spiritually as an individual independent of communities and sanghas and, and political states. And I think that's why we see so much emphasis on stoicism in contemporary discourse. When people think about ancient philosophy, they love to go back to the Stoics 
because the Stoics tell a story of how you can have an ethical individual life, even in political situations that are terrifying. But for Plato, that misses an important point, which is that you cannot realistically get good behavior at scale without good institutions. And if you live during a time period where the city is a democracy or a tyranny or any of the kinds of regimes which Plato considers lower, there is a real limit on the amount of good that is going to come out of that context, regardless of what, what quality of soul you have, what you intend. You're in a very difficult situation for Plato if you're under a bad regime, and he takes that very seriously. Do you think that Timaeus tries to make a case to people of Athens? Yeah, uh, that it, it does matter, <laughs> and that you know, but not using the the straightforward arguments you find in the Gorgas and things like that, but using myth. Yeah, I think you could read the Timaeus as kind of part of a series of arguments that Plato tries to make to persuade people that things matter. Because Plato is coming into a context where there have been a lot of sophists going around and arguing that the good is whatever you can persuade people it is. And a lot of uh, pre-Socratic philosophers who have that kind of view of ethics. And Plato is coming in and he's, he's very concerned about all of that. And he wants to find a way to persuade these people that there is a difference between good and bad and that they should care about being good. He thinks it's very important that people care about being good and that they not just do whatever it is that they desire to do or whatever causes them to be well thought of by other people. And at a number of different points, he tries very different arguments. And I think you could argue that many of the dialogues are, are about this same issue. And the Gorgas is a great example where Plato is arguing you know, very straightforwardly, that pleasure is not the same thing as the good, that there's a difference between these things. And Plato's interlocutor just isn't having it. Callicles in the Gorgas just isn't having it and won't cooperate. And at one point, Callicles just stops responding, stops participating in the discussion and forces Socrates to carry on arguing with himself and to put up imaginary arguments on Callicles' behalf, because Callicles thinks the whole philosophical exercise is stupid and pointless and a waste of time and has nothing to do with reality, which is really about making money and getting status and having success in a conventional earthly sense. Right. So I think you have the most straight up version of the argument uh, in the Gorgas. If you wanted to compare Plato to a contemporary moral philosopher like a Derek Parfit, the Gorgas is where Plato Socrates sounds the most like Derek Parfit. He's just having a straight argument about the idea of the good versus pleasure and whether these things are the same or whether you can meaningfully distinguish between the two. And some of the arguments that Parfit uses in On What Matters about, you know, wouldn't it be ridiculous if you really committed yourself to this idea that there was no such thing as the good? Those kinds of arguments get used in the Gorgas. But ultimately, in the Gorgas, this argument just doesn't work. And I, the lesson I think that you take from the Gorgas is I think that something like the argument that's made in the Gorgas is a perfectly suitable argument for the good, but it's not an argument that people who are not gold souls, in Plato's sense, would find persuasive. And so if you try to have an argument with someone for the good using the, the Gorgas arguments or using Parfit's arguments, oftentimes you'll just run into a wall which is that you've got somebody who is just really concerned with the sensibles, concerned with the physical world, so has a soul that is not oriented toward the intelligibles, but is oriented toward the realm of, the, of necessity, 
who just views the intelligibles as gobbledygook and as irrelevant to their life, which is about surviving and making stuff happen in space, right? And when you run into a person like that, you need some other kind of argument. And in the Republic, you get the whole parable of the city and the city is a more practical context. And that's meant to be maybe something that's a bit more accessible as a way of getting at this. Here in the Timaeus, which most scholars think comes after the Republic, they think that the order is Gorgas and Republic after that and Timaeus after that. Other dialogues, of course, in between, but in terms of those three, that order is the order that most scholarship prefers. The Timaeus uh, is an attempt to bake this into the universe at some higher level than the city and to give it a certain kind of authority by associating it with the gods. Because if you can get people to believe that the gods are good, uh, then anybody who thinks that there are gods could potentially be made to buy into this theory, even if they wouldn't buy into it for the purer reasons given in earlier dialogues. And I think that, uh, that in many ways that shows an awareness on Plato's part of the effectiveness of arguments in terms of gods for persuading people who might not be able to otherwise buy into the idea of the good as a pure abstraction. So when Christians argue that the good can't really be meaningful unless there is a God to give it to, to who has authority and makes it the case that some things are good and other things are bad. Uh, if you run into someone who believes that, that sort of person is not willing to believe that the good can exist without anyone to enforce it, right? The realm of the intelligibles exists regardless of whether anybody says it exists it, it, its existence is not a cause of somebody's will, because for Plato, anybody who has a will, you know, anybody who is, who is doing something, to do something is to be a part of the universe rather than the whole thing. So nothing that has a part can possess supreme wisdom. Nothing that is a part of the universe can, can possess supreme wisdom. And therefore, you can't have somebody doing something and have that somebody be identical with the whole of the universe. To do is to act upon something which is external, which is to be a part. So if you have a God that is doing something, that God has to be a part because the God is doing. And to do, there must be something that the God does it to that is external, right? So you have to have the receptacle because the craftsman has to work on something, right? And if the craftsman is able to determine what is good, then the good would be subject to the will of a part, which would make it different from the whole. So for Plato, you can't have that kind of thing because that would destroy the good. It would turn it into just uh, a question of authority. And then, you know, if it's the authority of the gods, then whoever it is that's interpreting the will of the gods can dictate what is good and bad and can do this on the basis of game playing with shadows on the wall of the cave rather than philosophy. But if the philosophers are the ones who are concocting the religion, and the philosophers have concocted a religion for the lower orders that isn't necessarily what they themselves believe, if they themselves believe something like what Plato lays out in the Timaeus, then they can be committed to philosophy and they can see the value of the good in itself while getting other people underneath to be focused on 
pleasing the gods. And by the way, the nature of the gods is that they're good. And if you want the gods to look favorably upon you, then you'll be good. If, if they cared about the lower orders that much, though, it seems like you're saying the mythos is one way of making it more appealing, making philosophy appealing. So the cosmology is kind of instrumental for, to philosophy. But what about the dialectic? Surely to any modern ears, like a back and forth conversation is a lot less stuffy to, you know, to a normal person than just like a bit like at the end of the Gorgas, Socrates giving this speech. Timaeus just gives this one this lecture about cosmology. Do you think that would appeal to ordinary Greeks more than this dialectic? Well, I think a lot of ordinary Greeks are not inclined to read these oh, yeah. dialogues in the first instance, right? So a lot of ordinary Greeks are not somebody that you're going to be able to really give an argument to. And a lot of ordinary Greeks who can read will still behave the way Callicles behaves in the Gorgas, where he's being given a dialogue, but he thinks it's all rubbish and he won't really participate in it. So you get this notion of kind of levels of the doctrine. So Plato's doctrine works differently depending on who you're communicating it to. So if you're communicating it to someone who has the capacity to do philosophy, it looks a lot different from if you're communicating to someone who isn't in that class. And for Plato, Plato is the one who comes up with the idea of the noble lie, and he says the rulers of the states, who of course in his view should be the philosophers, are the only ones who should have the privilege of lying because they will lie for purposes that are good because they do philosophy and therefore they interface with the intelligibles. They have some knowledge of what is good and therefore they know when and how to lie and what lies are good and what lies are bad. Everyone else who lies, lies on the basis of personal interests that come out of the other aspects of their souls. Uh, you know, They lie to look good to save their reputation or they lie to uh, you know, ensure that they're able to get, you know, to avoid painful experiences. Uh, the philosopher is meant to lie for positive reasons. So the, that means that some of the stuff that Plato lays out is mythological. So the myth of the metals is quite expressly this. In the case of the Timaeus, at one point, Plato says that his cosmology is as likely to be true as anything else, <laughs> right? So if you're going to teach somebody something else, you might as well teach them this. But the, I don't get that because he talks about this being a likely truth. So it's kind of in the realm of opinion. So it's in becoming. It's mm -hmm. not in being, which is like actual truth, which is understanding. But then like this whole likely truth is describing the thing that is true. So do you see what I'm saying? Like it's like- a, Yeah. But of course, because it's a description of the truth, it's not exactly the same as the truth. Because any description for Plato, anything that you put into words is a representation and therefore is in some way a distortion of what you're trying to reflect, uh, what it's trying to represent. And the words are a distorted representation of the concepts that are in Plato's head, which are a distorted representation of form. Insofar as Plato's a good philosopher, his concepts will come as close to form as he can have them come. But because the world is ever changing, and the concepts are about trying to interface between the world and the intelligibles, between the necessary and the intelligible, there will always be some level of gap. This idea of the noble lie does seem a lot like a form of good politics, but it also seems like a form of like dictator. It's like a Pol Pot argument. I mean, is there anything in Plato that gives a kind of standard to measure the ruling class so that when they're telling these lies, people can tell if they're doing it for a good reason? You know, like 
Yeah, that's an interesting point. Some consequential point. outcome. The, yeah, the, the trouble is that if you give that argument for Plato, then you turn the idea of the good into a dogma, where it's straightforwardly the case that some things are good and other things are bad. Now, when you do that, you then have, have turned the good to stone. So you've made it so that we can't think about it anymore because we've turned it into a dogma. So we can't change it. We can't revise it, which means as the material world changes, and the material world is always in flux and it's always becoming, we will need to understand the good differently to deal with those different concrete situations. And if we've turned the good into a dogma, we won't be able to use other faces or aspects of it to deal with those other situations. And for this reason, this is the one of the Platonist objections to Stoicism. I mentioned earlier that the Platonists don't like how the Stoics uh, abstract away from cities and focus on individuals. Another objection is that the Stoics try to say that the good is something that you can nail down, really nail down. And for Plato, you can't nail the good down in that kind of way because then it loses its ability to be applied in diverse ways to diverse situations. The good itself is just one thing and it's unchanging, but any attempt to bring the good into being as a tool that you can use involves bringing it down into the material world through language, through written words, through discussion, through the human brain and its concepts. And this involves distorting it. So the only way that you can nail the good down in such a way that people can't potentially misunderstand it is to misunderstand it. And so the thing that you're trying to avoid becomes precisely the thing that you create when you try to nail down what's good and what's bad in some kind of fixed schema. Now, a lot of people respond to that by going, well, if the good can't be nailed down, then it's bullshit and not real. And this is the thing. What If you're going to make that move, then you throw out the concept of the good altogether, and then you have nothing to guide you. So for Plato, the idea of the good is something which guides you, but something that you can't possess. So it's something that you are constantly trying to align with. And because you know you don't possess it, you're always questioning yourself. So Plato would look at something like a Pol Pot and go, that's a person who was too sure of himself because he had nailed it down in his mind as to what was good. And wasn't open to the possibility of having been mistaken and therefore did things that you would only do if you were absolutely sure. Yeah, he started out with a complete answer. And the whole point of Platonism is you start out on purpose, ignorant and willing to make a mistake. And that is how you're shown towards a correct understanding of things. But in the Timaeus, there's not much of, well, I mean, there's there's some of that, right? They, they say that we're happy to take the penalty if we're proven wrong. And then obviously the penalty is just we accept whatever's true. But beyond that... Well, there, there is an acknowledgement in the Timaeus that this is not a complete story, that it's only likely to be true, and that uh, it's an imperfect representation of the truth. So those things are acknowledged. Now, the degree to which you, you take it seriously with that caveat, I think some people write it off entirely and go, it's all just a metaphor. I think there are other people who take it quite seriously as a kind of of account of deism, and some deists really like this as a story of deism. I'm inclined to say that one of the differences between Platonism and Christianity is that Platonism puts the good ahead of the metaphysics. So for Plato, the demiurge is trying to make the universe 
in accordance with what's intelligible. And what's intelligible includes the good. And the good is something that the demiurge is trying to be loyal to and trying to uh, do, do right by rather than something which the demiurge created. The demiurge does not create the good. So therefore, the metaphysics of the universe is underneath what's intelligible and therefore underneath the idea of the good. And the whole universe is an attempt to realize the idea of the good in material reality. And that means the gods are an attempt to realize the good. The demiurge, everything the demiurge does is an attempt to realize the good. In Christianity, the good is dictated by the by God. God has authority over what's good, and therefore God is rendered secondary to the metaphysics. So when you have metaphysics leading, then if you were to not believe in God, then the whole notion of what's good and bad would fall apart. And then you would be plunged back into a situation where you would have arguments like those given by the sophists, where people argue, well, anything might be true. And as people have lost faith in Christianity, this is largely what has happened. People still think about the relationship between metaphysics and the good in a Christian way. So as they lose faith in Christianity, they assume that the loss of faith in God means that there's no difference between good and bad. Because in Christian discourses, God proceeds and God has the authority to dictate what is good and what is bad. Platonism has a reversal so whether you believe this account of the metaphysics or not, if Plato can get you to believe in the idea of the good, then he's done a lot of work here. And if this account of the cosmos helps you get there, that's great. And if the account of the city and the republic helps you get there, that's great. And if the arguments he gives in the Gorgas helps you get there, that's great. The thing that matters is that you recognize that the good exists, that the good is different from whatever it is that you happen to want or whatever it is that you happen to individually find pleasant. And that you are aware that you cannot have it in full and that you're constantly tearing with it. So even Plato's idea of the good is a true opinion, squarely in the realm of becoming. It's not an understanding because that would be in being. And we're not in being. We've fallen into being. So we're kind of estranged permanently. There's no understanding. There's just a true opinion. Yeah, I think that you could argue that there are, there are parts of Plato's dialogues that maybe suggest it could be more. That maybe suggests that the philosopher might have more than this, that they might really have understanding of the good. Uh, I, I'm ten I tend to be inclined to think that there's a kind of middle reading in which the philosopher has these glimpses, these moments where something stands out to them. But after those moments, when they're pulled back into the body, they can potentially forget what they've learned or uh, they can misapply it. And that's the thing, because the demiurge has to act in the realm of necessity and therefore with the receptacle, the demiurge needs not just knowledge of intelligibles, but also knowledge of how to apply intelligibles to the imperfect receptacle, in the imperfect receptacle. And that means that there can be mistakes made from just failing to fully understand the uh, limitations of, of necessity. So I think there's still scope for the philosophers to make mistakes. And there are points in the dialogues where that is emphasized. There are also points in the dialogues where Plato suggests that the philosophers do have knowledge of the good. I think, yeah, I think the, the middle way to read that is that the philosophers have moments where they glimpse it. And a lot of Neoplatonists read it this way, where they have these kinds of moments where they return to the one. 
but it's not suggested that they stay permanently in those moments. So for instance, in Buddhism, sometimes it's suggested that once you are enlightened, you are an enlightened one, and the rest of your life, you are enlightened. A lot of Neoplatonists thought of this as more of, of moments of, of oneness that you are then pulled back out of and that you have to refine. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure some Buddhists will also say that you can have insights like that, but then not almost not practice them. So you just fall squarely back to how you were. I mean, right. But it's not like a mystical experience, is it? It's, it's more like a, a insight doesn't have to be mystical, some kind of otherworldly, because you were suggesting that it can't, the, the difficulty is you can't always apply it. So that implies, yeah. well, a lot of, uh, of, Platonists have made the argument that doing philosophy is better than taking kind of mystical shortcuts, like the taking of the hallucinogenic drugs uh, at Greek uh, mysteries, Greek gods and their mysteries. They would have these kind of ceremonies where you would take different kinds of hallucinogenic drugs and you would have communal experiences that would give you the sense of oneness. And they were kind of engineered to give you the sense. Some Greek philosophers viewed those experiences as maybe a useful gateway to help somebody get interested in this or to help someone who couldn't otherwise you know, start the journey to start it. But a lot, for the most part, it was viewed as not as good as doing philosophy. Uh, and if you're able to do sober philosophy, then you don't need the mystical experience. And I think I, I, I tend to read that as if you're able to buy the arguments from the Gorgas or from the Republic, you may not need some of the additional cosmological elements in the Timaeus. But if you're the kind of person who can't be moved by those arguments, but could be moved by something like a cosmological account, then the Timaeus is there for you because Plato wants to help everybody that can be helped to get this with the understanding that some people may not get it no matter how he puts it. That said, in our context, people are much less willing to believe cosmological accounts. So a lot of people look at the Timaeus and go, well, who really needs that because it's a bunch of cosmology or a bunch of metaphysics. But I think that there are a lot of people out there who might find the Gorgas or the Republic unsatisfying, who might still find that the Timaeus is an easier way into this. If you're coming at Plato from a more religious predisposition, the Timaeus is a much easier way in. And, you know, if you, if you want to believe the cosmological account, it's as likely to be true as any other. Does he believe that though? Well, does he believe that his straightforward argument for the good in the Gorgas is as likely as the cosmology in Timaeus? Well, it's as likely to be true as any other cosmological okay. account. I don't think the, the Gorgas or the Republic, I mean, at the back of the Republic, you get a little bit of cosmological speculation at the, at the end. But for the most part, in the, Gorg in the Gorgas, you don't really get very much cosmology. Uh, and yeah, so I think it's, it's an alternative to other cosmological explanations. And in the Republic, Homer is, is in particular singled out as having a bad cosmology that is a bad influence on young people. A popular bad cosmology because the gods are portrayed as nasty buggers who are interested in having their desires satisfied or in looking cool. And therefore, uh, that suggests that you're, you can get the favor of the gods by being a silver or bronze type. Mm. Plato doesn't like that. So I think we're, we're over an hour and I think it's been a pretty tight hour. I think we've, you know, honestly, we've gotten where we need to go. So I think, uh, I think we'll call it for this one. 
Uh, and we're going to keep doing more of these and uh, hopefully hopefully lots of them. Alex and I will have a little talk after we get off about which one's going to be next, but what we're going to do next, we haven't decided yet. But we hope you like this first one with Alex and there will be more. So thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. <laughs>